Hey everybody, welcome back to the Silicon Sasquatch Podcast, Season 3, Episode 16. Holy crap, that's a lot of episodes. I don't know how we made it. Uh, I'm your host for today, Nick Cummings. I'm joined with uh, joined by Tyler Martin. If we're 16, does that make us officially jailbait? Tyler Martin has been removed from the podcast. <laughs> I'm also joined by Aaron Thayer. It uh, took us 30 seconds to go off the rails, but hello everybody. Yeah, so um, we're fr- fresh out of the IGN podcasting coaching <laughs> circle. And uh, we're here to talk about um, a specific topic for today is uh, some of the major trends that came out of this console generation as we're entering uh, this new one in the coming weeks. So uh, we wanted to kind of just focus on a couple things that we thought really were either made out to be a big deal, turned out to be a big deal, weren't expected to be a big deal, but kind of wound up being one anyway. So if you're expecting 30 minutes on horse armor, you've come to the right place. I think the first topic we want to talk about before we get to that uh, bit of DLC, though, is... Um, oh, shit. What did we say? Motion. Motion controls. Motion controls. We're going to talk about motion controls. So, uh, Tyler, would you like to give us a quick overview of how that whole thing entered the equation? Uh, well, Nintendo realized that they could not compete with Sony and Microsoft on a hardware level because the GameCube, like, as lovely as that little box was, did really terribly sales-wise. So they made another GameCube and gave you a wand to wave around in front of your TV with and thought that might be more intriguing. And to a large audience, it certainly was. You could waggle to make Link swing his sword? Oh, yeah. Well, not at first really well until they had Motion Plus because, of course, it wasn't really one-to-one. Yeah, uh, Nintendo loves to sell you one thing that does something apparently really well and then t- come back to you later, years later and say, just kidding, this does it way better. Yeah, so. <laughs> continue to buy this stuff, though. I feel like it's oh, a yeah. foregone conclusion. Just kidding, kids. That Game Boy Color was garbage. <laughs> Go buy a Game Boy Advance. Just kidding. Get the SP. It's got backlit screen now. Kids, you like 3D? Well, you know what? We're going to sell you on 2D now. It's called the 2DS. <laughs> <laughs> Getting ahead of ourselves again, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like with motion control... I mean, I don't know. Do we think that uh, it was inherently a bad thing? Only because if we still look at the abysmal performance of the Wii U, which we're not talking about, you know, the current stuff, that's not the topic of this podcast, but the Wii was routinely outselling the Wii U, and they had to, they just now in Japan cut production on the Wii U, or the Wii, I'm sorry, (laughs) maybe uh, that was a Freudian slip, but so they finally cut production on the Wii. Um, and it was constantly cannibalizing the Wii U sales. So do we think that the Wii then was successful as motion control, or was that just a fluke because it was a cheaper machine? Both. Yeah. So motion controls made a difference. How? It was a gimmick that made it exciting to people that were intimidated by game controllers. And Wii Sports is a very easy concept to understand. They're all sports that people are intimately familiar with, and they require emotions that people are already familiar with. And whereas, like, our crowd, the hardcore crowd, like, we were excited by the idea of a new Nintendo console called the Revolution, <laughs> but then you saw that controller, and I think we all just collectively uttered, what the fuck? I like, disagree. I That's when I pre-ordered it. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I looked at it, and I was like, it's a TV remote. Nintendo is selling me a Fisher Price TV remote. Like, what is going on? Well, the way I looked at it was, in the past 20 years, I've never been disappointed by Nintendo hardware. Yeah. Um, uh. You know, 
Never. I they're still my favorite consoles. They always have been. Really? Even the Virtual Boy had its merits. Come on. That's... No, no, it did not. <laughs> We're not talking about the Virtual Boy. 3D's coming up next. <laughs> so no, I when I saw a more accessible console that was focused on making fun and actually bringing motion control to the living room in a way that didn't look completely stupid, like the Sega Genesis thing you could buy about 15 years back. Was it the Activator? Yeah. God, that thing's commercial was terrible. <laughs> and the product was worse. Yeah, but that, that thing wasn't really motion controls. It was just registering movements as actual button inputs. Yeah, but look at the commercial. Okay. Look at all 90s commercials. Look at Nintendo's <laughs> 90s commercials. Oh, God. Let's not go there. Play it loud, Nick. Play it loud. <laughs> so with the motion control, Nick, what, what appealed to you, though? Uh, two things. One was that I thought that there was a really big opportunity to make games that are around motion for like precision play. Uh, I think I, that was kind of vindicated by the way that some games like Flower ended up using uh, motion. To the Flower, a PS3 game. game, by the way. <laughs> Well, yeah, the, the, every console this generation had motion control. We'll get to that. But it was it was that opportunity for new de- uh, design and new like experiences, but also just seeing something that I thought I could hand to a friend who doesn't play games, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, I can get behind bowling. I'll come play this with you. Yeah, I, I would agree that the initial concept still had me on board, regardless of the naming and the, the marketing change. The Wii can go down in history as a bad name or a good name depending on your perspective but the motion controls did revolutionize at least even temporarily and i guess carrying into this next generation how a lot of games are played i guess what i am curious though because i personally haven't seen it really impact long term the new players of games so like you mentioned wii sports great idea to pack that in with the console so you get your aunt and uncle your grandma and grandpa your uh, neighbor who doesn't play games to try it everybody loved it there were all those news stories for months after the console launched in 2006 about motion controls but are any of those people still using motion control games or maybe even went to a connect or a playstation move was that just like a flash in the pan for the market and did it actually make a difference I think that the sales of the Wii U make it very obvious that it's just a flash in the pan because Nintendo has not been able to convert the audience they got with the Wii U with the Wii to the Wii U. God, I hate that name so fucking much. <laughs> so it was a fad? Yeah, how does that make motion controls a flash in the pan? Because the Wii U was never marketed as a motion console primarily. No, but it was marketed as the Wii successor. And the whole point of motion controls was to get people who don't play games to play games. And those people are not playing games anymore. Are they confused by the new console messaging? Because I like if they loved motion controls, which I I feel like once the Motion Plus happened, which for me I have I don't have a Connect, I don't have a Move, so I never really experienced those outside of just games here and there. The motion controls worked for me finally when the Motion Plus came out, and I played something like Skyward Sword, where it really did give me a chance to play Zelda, and like the the demos implied slash my sword where I wanted to raise the shield, sort of like be Link in a more immersive way. So I was sold on it then, but those people who were really into it, where did they go? Like, I I don't understand. They were exactly what Nintendo wanted. They were casual. They weren't people that played games actively the way we do. Like, they were people that busted the Wii out for parties and family get-togethers, and they would play Wii Sports, and they wouldn't play a whole lot else. I mean, we, motion controls are inherently not conducive to long play sessions or to frequent play sessions because 
a lot of those games, they are kind of exhausting. I mean, I don't want to stand there and waggle that remote around for hours on end. That's why the Wii version of Twilight Princess is garbage. Wait, you're just full of shit, dude. Like, it is not garbage. It was a great game. It, it was good. I don't think the motion controls hampered it at all, but I never played just the, the pure GameCube version, because why would I? I played both. I finished the GameCube version. I find it much superior, because it's a long-ass game, and I don't want to have to wackle that controller every time I want Link to swing his stupid sword. See, I think what we're talking about, though, is two different kinds of people who play games. One who would sit down for hours on end to play a Zelda game, and one who has maybe an hour here and there where they want to have some fun with it and try something different. I don't think it's a good way to play a Zelda game. I don't think they're built that way. You Have you played the DS games? They were built that way. Yeah, I didn't really care for either of the DS games. Well, anyway, well, the point I'm making is that this has been the debate for years about the Wii, and what it comes down to is it really did open up the market, as the numbers show, to a much broader spectrum of people playing games, but also to people who came from that hardcore market, like me, who no longer spend a whole lot of time playing games. Yeah. Like I don't, I, I don't, can't tell you the last time I sat down to play a game for more than an hour, except for last night when we played Grim Fandango. But that was kind of a different story. <laughs> All right, but what what do you think you played more of this then? Do you think you played more of your Wii? Do you think you played more of your 360? Up until about two years ago, it would have been my 360. With the Rock Band stuff, but yeah. Yeah, but I could have gotten that on any console. And two years ago, what? PC? Uh, 3DS, iPhone. But not Wii. Well, what's come out in the Wii in the last couple of years? I played Skyward Sword a little bit, but I haven't played anything on my 360 either. Like, I'm, I just uh, personally, I'm, I'm, I'm one person out of billions, but like, that is how my gaming tastes have changed. Well, the gaming audience is in billions, so you're kind of overshooting the mark there. That's just semantics. <laughs> okay, so before we move on then, because, I mean, motion controls, we, I, I think we've kind of gotten the gist of it, maybe. But what do you guys... Well, we haven't really talked about Sony or Microsoft's efforts at all either. But they all were extensions of the same thing, weren't they? So, okay, so what about Sony and Microsoft were different, Tyler? Like, what what did they do? Do they do the formula better for motion controls this generation, or what? Well, I do think the Move is better than the Wii Remote, but it is kind of the exact same idea, just implemented a little better and with different games. It's just a little bit more precise than on the Wii Remote. I think it's probably even more precise than the Motion Plus, given the whole camera solution. Uh, Nick probably has a lot more experience with the Kinect than I do. Uh, you were a fan of um, I don't know, what was Dance uh, Central, right? Yeah, I, I thought that game worked really well. I liked the Gunstringer as well, but I got a Kinect cheap used. I didn't have a whole lot of faith in the hardware. Uh, Child of Eden kind of worked all right on it. I don't know. I mean, it all comes down to refresh rate and the way that the games are developed, and it didn't have a good showing on either front for the 360. Maybe the uh, Xbox One will be different. It feels like the Kinect was more of a demo for the eventual Kinect successor on the One, which if anybody has played uh, with the Kinect 2 on the Xbox One, it is pretty legit. It actually does everything they originally wanted to do with the Kinect. It just... So Microsoft pulled a Nintendo then? A reiteration? Yeah. It's like, just just kidding. That thing we, we sold you before, that's some hot garbage. This is the real shit. To be fair, I guess, it is a whole new console, but yeah, I mean... I, I guess if we're looking at the, the mark that motion control has left, though, it feels, and I could be totally wrong here, um, because there is a PlayStation camera for the PlayStation 4, but that is not included in the hardware, so Sony doesn't feel it's an essential piece of the experience. Obviously, Microsoft went the other direction, so for the extra $100, you're getting a Connect 2 in every box because it's essential to their vision. 
but it's not so essential you have to leave it plugged into your Xbox. Because of complaints. I mean, we could go on about that forever, and we did before and other stuff, but because pe- people complained about it, it's not required to be on and connected. So either way... Like- but are there any games coming out at launch or in the launch window that require the Connect? Probably. There's a Zuma game. I don't know. I'm not going to buy it, but I'm not buying an Xbox One either. But yeah, there are Kinect games. Well, I know there are Kinect games. Then what were you asking? I was curious if there's going to be any launch games, any of the, the stuff that we know about, any of the exclusives that are going to use the Kinect or require the Kinect to play them. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Zumba. Kinect uh, Sports Rivals, or um, I think that's the name of it, the Xbox One Kinect Sports. That's Kinect exclusive. I mean... Whether or not it's actually a system seller is a is an entirely different debate. It's not, but they still have that vision, though, right? And it feels like, to me, Nintendo started with the idea of motion controls. And then a few years later, Microsoft and Sony come in. So if, this, if the PlayStation Move was better, well, it definitely benefited from a few more years of research and development and taking the... Uh, the product knowledge, the market research that Nintendo did to see the successes and then improve upon that. So obviously they would have made something technically better, but I feel like less supported, obviously. One thing that might be worth mentioning, just to kind of show that I'm not completely down on motion controls, is that it seems like another idea from this gen that put in the hands of indies is capable of some very unique and compelling ideas. Like, if you look at the whole kickstarted uh, sports champion game that will eventually be coming to PS3 and PS4, like uh, I know Johann Sebastian Joust is amongst those. Uh, Hokra, I think, is one of the games. Uh, Body Body Ball, I think, is another one. They're all all of them are controller based except for Johann Sebastian Joust, I think. Oh, really? I thought they were all move based. No, I played it at PAX, but it, it looks pretty good. And Johan Sebastian Joust is worth the price alone, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. yeah, but that price also needs to include like seven other motion or move controllers. You can play it with three, mm. I think. So do we, maybe if I have to try to boil it down, do we feel like motion controls were a success this generation? Absolutely. Absolutely not. I, I, I still have like almost no interest in playing games with motion controls. Uh even like Microsoft's weird smart glass idea seems more unique and more of like a audience building technique that could actually benefit games than what Connect Two is capable of delivering. I I would take the opposite tack on this. Uh, I think in terms of accomplishing what they set out to do with motion controls, which is to expand the audience and get more people buying their products, is a huge success. Maybe not so much for Sony. I don't think there's any evidence that that audience was retained i'm not talking about audience retention i'm talking about selling consoles in the previous generation all right and the new consoles are now yet with the exception of the wii u which is not selling well so which i think is a whole separate matter than the motion controls included sure enough yeah i think i don't know i feel like motion controls at least did enough to disrupt the market clearly look at the new hardware and even you might go out on a limb to say this, but even something like the Oculus Rift, which isn't motion control, but an alternative interface for uh, gaming, I think made something like that easier to, um, to to be mass marketed because of the disruption of using something like motion controls from the start of the Wii through the other big two console manufacturers. Yeah. Do we want to talk about 3D? Fucking, I, I hate 3D. Uh, that's <laughs> that's all I have to. No, I have more to say about that. But so, what 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 do you guys feel about 3D? I don't know. In terms of just movies, 
it's it's always been one of those things that it's like it's not actively offensive to me. It's just never been much of a selling point. I am one of those people that went to go see Avatar purely because it was billed as like this is the reason that 3D movies exist. And then I walked out of their dances with wolves with Smurfs, and I thought this is some <laughs> poor shit right here. I agree with you, but so it never really made an impact. <laughs> I, I never really got to experience a lot of HD games in 3D because I've never owned a 3D television. Uh, I've heard good things about select experiences like uh, Shadow of the Colossus and Eco. I hear look great in 3D. It just never got a huge wealth of support. Uh, I have a 3DS, and most of the time my 3D is turned off. There are a few games that I think do benefit from the 3D functionality, but most of the time since the 3D is not essential to the experience. I leave it off just because I like battery life more than I like gimmicks. So is gimmick uh, meant to be a condescending word or is that, how, how are you using that word? As a non-essential feature. Okay. Yeah, no, that totally makes I, sense. I don't mean it as inherently negative. I know it might be construed that way, but no, I understand like 3D can look great in some games, but because I can play these games and still enjoy them without the 3D, it's just a gimmick to me. Hmm. I think you mentioned the biggest part of it for me. I don't have a 3D TV. I don't either. And asking consumers to adopt a format, which is not like Blu-ray, where it's still cheap to buy a disc and just a Blu-ray player compared to $2,000 for a whole new TV. If they had done something for the technology to begin with, where it was, um, I don't know, upscaling possibility, which of course wasn't possible. Um, I think that's the only reason I have a 3D device is because it was baked into the 3DS, and it didn't require some sort of upgrade or ridiculous cost. So, yeah, like, even if I went to the store today and bought a new TV, I would not buy a 3D TV unless it was on sale or I got to deal with it. Like, it doesn't interest me. Actually, you probably would, if only by accident, because a lot of TVs have that feature already as a part of the TV. Separately. Especially if you're buying, like, a Sony. Yeah, I guess so. You're right. Like, more often than not, it has 3D now just because of other people than game manufacturers pushing the format but for me i'm a smart enough consumer to where i'll go and i'll buy the tv that's 500 dollars less because it doesn't have smart tv bullcrap and 3d in it but that's a separate thing so like i don't dislike 3d i just never had a tv to experience it or even a computer monitor which costs 500 dollars. it's ridiculous it wasn't a wholly unreasonable gambit from the get-go i mean i am one of the people that i bought an hd tv not at the start of the gen, but like a year after, because these HD consoles existed. Like, if it wasn't for the, the 360, if it wasn't for Bioshock and Halo and Gears of War, I wouldn't have bought a th- an HD television. I didn't want to upgrade my cable subscription to include HD channels or any of that nonsense. Like, I had no interest in Blu-rays. I was one of those people that was like, ah, DVDs suit me fine. But now that I have an HD TV, it's like, you can't go back from that. But 3D with the whole glasses thing, like... I don't know, it never held that appeal. And even on the 3DS, like, the on the 3DS XL, the, the range in which you can really experience that 3D without the ghosting images is limited, and that's not very appealing to me, because when you're holding a handheld, sometimes you change positions, and suddenly it's like, oh, now I can't see it. I lost the, lost the thread. You guys don't have that issue ever? To some extent. I mean, I don't really, it doesn't really bother me with 3DS unless the game doesn't use 3D that well, but in those cases, I usually just don't bother with it. I, I agree that the, the TV value proposition for 3D for almost all this generation was just stupid. 
like I had no interest in it. I, I have an HGTV, but I also have a no frills one because like Aaron, I was like, I have other hardware that'll do this stuff. I don't want it tacked on for more money. So I just want a, a, a display to play my games on. I have seen amazing looking 3D TVs over here. And I have seen like live demonstrations of 3D programming that make it compelling and make it think like, I would like to experience this in my home, but it's still like, I would have to wear the glasses you have that limited angle in which you can view the content. And 3D TVs, just, I don't know, they're not a cheap proposition. It's like there was finally a breaking point eventually in which HD televisions became like a more consumer-friendly, affordable device, even though it did require you to buy a brand-new TV. It wasn't the extreme option that it was when it first came out. Yeah, about five years ago, it really changed to where the market price was low enough to, like you're saying, more and more people could buy it. It was standard, which I think is going to happen to 4K, the Super HD stuff. And I think that has a way better chance of impacting the next generation of gaming um, because all the consoles already out of the box support, well, sorry, aside from the Wii U, support 4K resolution. And those TVs are like $5,000 on up for a decent one. So it's the same idea. I think they'll support 4K playback, but we're not going to see any 4K games. No, I mean... There's no way the new consoles are strong enough to support a game of that resolution. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. But I, I don't know. 3D, I think the people who pushed it on consumers probably did believe in it in some way. I'm totally just pulling that out of my ass. But... I think there was a lot of passion from the um, companies and developers that used 3D and kind of encouraged it, but it just, it, it was a victim of its own cost. And you look at stuff like not just Nintendo and backing away from 3D support in uh, Pokemon, which we talked about during the, the Pokemon podcast and mentioning it at the beginning of this one where the 2DS is, you know, for kids, sure, if you want to phrase it that way, but it doesn't have a 3D slider. And stuff like Sony, when they, they sold a, a couple E3s ago, that 3D TV bundle, and then they stopped selling that pretty quickly, and you didn't even hear anything about 3D during the last E3. So, that like, they even backed away from it. It was only a 26-inch TV. It wasn't even... I mean, it was a good value, but yeah. It was supposed to be entry-level. Yeah, like entry-level trying to get people into the format, but it apparently didn't do well enough yeah it doesn't surprise me frankly though when we see the whatever the actual successor to the 3ds is i will be shocked if it is i mean even if it has 3d functionality i will be shocked if it has like 3d like build in the title the way 3ds has i i totally see it being called something completely different it might retain that ds name but 3d is not going to be a part of its marketing yeah the dual screen is definitely going to stay around yeah, I would expect it to. I don't know. With the whole like uh, 2DS basically being one screen separated by plastic, I could see them just going full tablet and just emulating the whole two-screen thing for uh, backwards compatibility's sake. Yeah, you never know. But that's a, that's a whole different can of worms right there. <laughs> yeah, I think we're getting a little far <laughs> afield there. Uh, there's just one footnote I want to add to the 3D discussion, which is I'm, I think the only interesting thing happening on that front right now is what the Oculus Rift is trying to do. It, which, granted, is not a mass market product, probably never will be. But in terms of actually trying to foster innovative game design built around 3D, where it's not optional, uh, I think that, that there there is a contingent of people building a product that will do that. Yeah, you're right. It, what we played at PAX and what I experienced, that has sold me more on 3D than anything. Um, I just 
I'm still not going to buy one unless it somehow was magically $100 or less, which is not going to happen anytime soon, if ever. Oculus Rift plus treadmill and Proteus. <laughs> oh, God. You would lose your mind. Yeah. <laughs> Should we move on to the last topic then? Yes. The big Seems as good a time as any. All right. So, downloadable content. Uh, we've come a long way from horse armor, but... Uh, we kind of back- loop back around if you think <laughs> yeah, about it. Yeah, we kind of have actually. That's a funny. That's a funny point. I mean, now you can buy different gun colors. Who doesn't want to walk around like Gears of War or Call of Duty with like a pink camouflage gun? Because that's handy in combat. It really affects your play style, just like horse armor did in Oblivion. Yeah, cosmetic DLC <laughs> is one of those things that I think we all hated when it was first kind of announced at the outset of the Xbox 360, which was really the first console to. Are you do... assuming that we've changed our minds on that stance? Like, now we, we love cosmetic DLC. I mean, I know this group probably doesn't, but if you look at this, the kind of money that Dota's pulling in, people do love cosmetic, spending money on stupid things for their characters. I mean, I've, I've bought a thing here or there, I'm not going to lie, like, especially on an <laughs> iOS, like a, you know, you guys know the game Triple Town, right? No. No. No? Really? It's like, I don't know, not really a match three game, it's like a puzzle game where you have a very limited uh, play field, and you place these items... I mean, it is kind of match three in that way. But when you match three, it becomes another item, and that gets you points. And then you match that item with other things. And meanwhile, the game is adding these bears to your town, and you have to track the bears to make different items. It's a puzzle game, basically, is what I'm saying. But <laughs> you can buy a pack that changes the seasons. And it's 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 artfully done. It looks nice. And since I had ne- literally never spent a dime in the game prior to that, like the seasons pack was two bucks, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, why the hell not?" Okay, so maybe let me let me ask you guys this. Um, I've been trying to grapple with this concept about, uh, like you're talking about Tyler, with kind of cosmetic DLC, um, but where I feel like I'm susceptible to it is in customization, uh, depending on the game. Which, uh, to give a recent example, <clears throat> and I just talked about this before we started recording, with Battlefield Five, uh, you can um, purchase battle packs, which will give you, like for those who played Mass Effect 3's multiplayer, um, little packs that have a, a handful of items, usually some camo, swatches, uh, a new weapon or something like that, or some bonuses. So, Swatches? Uh, like a color scheme swatch sort of like fabric oh. yeah so oh, your character got a little wristwatch <laughs> that would that, i actually would pay for that i would totally pay for that different swatch customization um get watches for your dog in call of duty <laughs> uh yeah it's yeah um don't be ridiculous nick dogs can't tell time i hope <laughs> if, if infinity ward is listening to this they're gonna do that so um but anyway i I like that idea, but I wouldn't pay for it. Like, I wouldn't buy those packs. Those are things you can buy. But I think where it's kind of evolved, even if it's gone full circle from the horse armor, which I think offended a lot of people to begin with because that was some of the first DLC. And it was like, okay, I'm going to pay, maybe it was five bucks at the time for something that changed nothing. That's dumb. Now we kind of accept it. But I think the developers and uh, companies like EA have gotten smarter where those battle packs for Battlefield, they offer more value on a purchase. And you can earn them 
through the game's normal mechanics. Like when you rank up to level three, I think, in uh, Battlefield 4. So the first time you do that, you'll get a free pack. So first taste is always free. You open it up. Oh, cool. You'll see some stuff. You'll go, yeah, that's cool. Now I have some unique customization for my soldier on the battlefield that nobody else does. Is that enticing? Is like, is that a better way to do this cosmetic DLC or does it still not matter to either of you? Well, we might be harping on horse armor a little too much, but I mean, you kind of touched on the big problems with that a little bit in that it was like the first DLC we experienced this gen was <laughs> cosmetic horse armor. Like it was called horse armor. It did nothing for your horse except <laughs> for make it look a little bit prettier. It didn't even give it actual armor bonus. Yeah, but we have gotten better about pricing too. Like that was, let's like you said, five dollars for that. Whereas now cosmetic tends to be like maybe fifty cents, maybe a dollar. Like it's it's within that kind of like uh, impulse buy range now. And also, this was at a time when, for a game like uh, Oblivion, like they hadn't said anything about Shivering Isles. They hadn't said anything about some actual expansion content for oblivion like when your first addition to the existing game is just that and nothing else like yeah you gotta expect a little bit of backlash and this is an audience that prior to that like the only expansion content we'd ever seen was like actual retail expansions like build-ons to these games that weren't just cosmetic items yeah back in the days of boxed pc games it really set a bad tone for the whole thing. And I think it took a lot of time for the market to kind of accept that DLC could be valuable and downloadable games in particular. Like, look at what, you know, when the Xbox launched, there was also Geometry Wars, which showed that, you know, downloadable self-contained games could be pretty great, especially for a reasonable price. That was five bucks at the time. Now you'd be hard-pressed to find a downloadable game on a console that's less than $10. Usually even less than 15 is rare. Well, I mean, even look at the name. Like, it was called the Xbox Live Arcade. They were billing it as like those old style type of games. Like no one at that time was thinking on the caliber of something like Bastion. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was like thinking of like this is the kind of thing that you would have put a quarter into. So wildly different experiences. Yeah, so that 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 changed a lot, and I think as well the DLC thing did uh, pretty significantly. Like you mentioned, Shivering Isles did come out. was a very substantial content release for the game. I mean, I know Aaron and I played through that. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember how early into the gen that came out, but I think that probably was like... It was within the first year. The game changer. That was the kind of the, the, the DLC that changed the tone of the conversation as far as DLC goes. I don't think that Shivering Isles was as expansive as like the expansion packs of old, but it, it was more substantial like it was the one that made us kind of understand like okay this is the potential that dlc has i give a lot of props to bethesda in particular for uh to me mainstreaming the idea of dlc as expansions um or something that's substantially worth purchasing because you know they were a pc developer and they put more wind on it the uh, uh version one xbox but you know they they came from the background of expansions and extra content and epic um, add-ons that were uh, worthy of a main game. 
So they, to me, were the only developer for a long time that really uh, legitimized DLC by offering stuff like Shivering Isles. And then when Fallout 3 came out, um, the awesome, uh, most of them anyway, <laughs> expansions that they put out, like uh, for me, Point Lookout, was huge. And that was totally worth That's a great point, though, because the ones leading up to Point Lookout were not quite as impressive. I mean, looking back on uh, Operation Anchorage, when you were playing in a virtual interface and you didn't really get that much experience or items. You basically bought it for the ninja suit, really. I mean, that oh, was, that ninja suit was so great, though. It was. But they took a lot of risks, right? So they kind of helped. Um, and then you had stuff like Rockstar with uh, Liberty City uh, in GTA 4 and like Battle of the Gay Tony and Lost and Damned. They also kind of pushed the envelope forward. So do, I don't know, I, f- I feel like expansions now are ubiquitous just as dlc like they're the same thing to me because of those games the the rockstar thing brings up another interesting point because that's when we first started seeing rather than consoles having exclusive games you now had exclusive dlc or you had exclusive timed dlc when it comes to things like call of duty or battlefield oh yeah if console manufacturers and publishers can strike a deal to make a lot of money at the cost of consumers they'll totally do it <laughs> no oh <laughs> I'm being too mean. No, I'm not. (laughs) So are we okay with DLC now? I think we come to terms with it, but, you know... It's still hit or miss, but, I mean, so were expansions. Expansions weren't always for the better either. Well, Nick, talk talk to us about, like, Rock Band. Isn't that the ultimate idea of DLC? And, like, what... Like, how did you legitimize... Was it just the game itself, and you were like, okay, fine, I'll just buy these songs as content? Or did you still originally have to grasp with the idea of paying for song to song? It made sense to me because I, the idea of buying an individual song through like iTunes or an equivalent store had been around for a while at that point. And I got into Guitar Hero before it for the gameplay and the way it kind of like blended the music in a really believable and kind of fun and challenging way. So the idea of being able to get just more and more and more of that, not having to wait for an annual release through Rock Band was pretty awesome. So I kind of looked at it more as like, I want to keep getting better at, with my skills at these instruments because I enjoy getting better at them and then playing the game is more fun for me when I'm better at it. So it was more of like looking at them as level expansions less than just like, oh man, I'm getting run through the ringer here every week with these three new songs to buy. And then when the albums came out, I was like, shit, I need to start making more money. <laughs> but at the same time, in hindsight, it always seemed funny that they never had a subscription service. I'm guessing it's because they thought they wouldn't make as much money or the licensing would have required a whole different approach legally, but... You know, it's now that we're in an era of season passes and things like that, it seems a little strange that Rock Band never pursued like a, I don't know, maybe pay $10 for a three-hour a la carte, all-you-can-play selection when you have friends over for Rock Band night or pay X number of dollars a month to just have access to the full catalog. I think it was just entirely a timing thing. Like, even Rock Band 3 was released and kind of hit the height of its popularity slightly before season passes kind of became a normative thing. Yeah. It's it's interesting that Dan Central never used it, but Dan Central didn't have nearly the amount of DLC that Rock Band had. Yeah. Yeah. But now we're seeing, like, doesn't SingStar have a service like that? I think there's a Nintendo karaoke game that has the service, or, like, you can pay... Yeah, they both do. Yeah, so it's definitely starting to become a thing. And I wouldn't be surprised if we eventually see a next-gen uh, Rock Band if it did employ something like that. Although Rocksmith doesn't, but that's... I think, a much more focused and limited experience. It's very niche. It is pretty niche. I do want to check it out, but yeah. Do you think that, uh, this is not necessarily part of our discussion, but the lack of um, 
harmonics and um i guess even it was still was neversoft still the one doing guitar hero before they stopped or was it they licensed a couple of the like artist only games out but yeah it was um neversoft okay so do you think that those music games stuck with dlc and non-subscription like pioneering it and do you think that now maybe i'm reaching here but with the um popularity and the uh, normality of of services like spotify and others that that would be successful for a music game comeback model now like paying a subscription to have access to songs because now you know people in their 20s just do that i think if anyone's going to do something like that it's going to be sony it's going to be for singstar and it's going to be using their subscription service they already have built into the ps4 which is music unlimited well right you can't even listen to music on your ps4 without it right yeah uh, right now, uh, it, they are making suggestions that that's going to be something that's going to be added shortly after in a, a firmware update. But that's probably just because of the backlash. It's not like something they were planning ahead of. Yeah. Oh, Sony makes mistakes too, everyone. Not just Microsoft. All right. Keep that on record. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to see a lot of mistakes made with the launch of these two consoles. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be It's gonna be funny. I'll just sit here with my 3DS and... Uh, there's a reason I don't have anything pre-ordered. Yeah. These these things tend to be... Messy. Bumpy. I think there was a lot of change this generation just from what we've been talking about. And it feels like even now, on the twilight of this generation and the dawn of the next, it still doesn't quite feel to me like all of the uh, the innovations this generation have been really worked out. It, it feels like this generation, in so many ways even if it didn't start out that way, was a stepping stone to the next idea. Like, this whole disruptive period, the last six, seven years, of just how media has changed and how digital technology and subscriptions and everything have have completely changed outside of the gaming industry, that these consoles ended up being like a testing bed with their subscription services, their multimedia capabilities. And now maybe this gen, they'll actually get their shit together. Yeah. That's a great point. I'm curious before we leave DLC though, like, I mean, talk of the subscriptions, like have either of you bought a season pass for a game and do you regret it? Or do you kind of stand by that purchase? Well, I know Aaron's got a good example. I bought a few, I bought the max pain three, one when it was on sale on steam, I bought the saints row three, one when it was on sale on steam. Uh, I didn't really like either. I don't have a great opinion to share there, but um, I think if, if you, the risk there is like, do you trust that the content you're getting is going to be what you're expecting and up to the quality you'd hope for? Yeah, in a way that these uh, season passes, they kind of feel like, kind of like kickstarting. Like you're kickstarting yeah. the DLC for this game. You're kind of hoping that the promise of what you can play equals what you actually do eventually get to play it's like the most lame stock market because your return of investment is probably not going to even be that great even if you like the game yeah maybe you get like a five dollar discount than if you bought this stuff piecemeal uh the the ones that stand out for me are uh the bioshock infinite season pass where it seems like when i bought that irrational literally had no idea what the bioshock dlc was going to look like which is a little bit more distressing for me now, but at least we have a better idea, and at least like it's coming very soon. But if I had known at the time, I probably would have been like, I can just wait. I didn't need to buy into that hype immediately. And also, I, I bought the Borderlands 2 uh, season pass, because a friend of mine and I, he, he, we co-op that game pretty heavily. And uh, 
I, I, I kind of regret purchasing that because the Borderlands DLC is just so hit or miss. Like, some of it's great, some of it significantly less so, and I have not completed all the content included with my season pass. I'm, I'm glad hmm. you mentioned Borderlands because that's a good example for me of, um, in conjunction with, I think what Nick was going to mention as far as my example was Battlefield, right? Was that? Yeah. Yeah, because that. I think the best season passes are for games that, and I guess I'm describing all season passes, but they're either the single player games that are going to add more content to that story, or it's an ecosystem that you've bought into as far as multiplayer and co-op, and you know you're going to keep playing that game because your friends are or you love it. So for me, the only really good value, um, uh, three games I can think of as far as season passes go, uh, Battlefield Premium for Battlefield 3 and 4. Um, L.A. Noir's Season Pass, because for me, I know I keep defending this game all the time. But <laughs> that, that was a great uh, Season Pass for me because of the single-player element and doing all those extra cases and missions. Like I, I really loved that game. I really did, and I still do. So that was worth it. And then Border- Borderlands... Um, I guess there wasn't really a season pass for the first one, but the second one for sure, because I had played that game to 50 had like done the, the next level plus crap and played with the friends a lot. And once you really what season passes are you telling the game developer, I want the game of the year edition before the game of the year edition comes out. Yeah. I mean, they're smart by doing that. It's not something that's going to go away. No, we are forgetting probably one of the best examples of a season pass though, which is the walking dead. Do you consider that a season pass? Yeah. Is that really this... Well, that, that's a more traditional season pass for like a TV show. It's billed as a season pass. <laughs> like that's, that's literally what's called in the story. And you can buy each of the episodes piecemeal if you so choose. Uh, yeah. Uh, it is one of those that stands outside of other examples, right? Because we, we've even talked about this with um, um, discussing our, not to spoil anything, but our potential game of the year discussion later this year. Like, does it count as a game if there's one episode of this portion of this season of a of a game out? So I guess it's a season pass. Spoiler: It does not. So <laughs> is that a season pass though? For what? Walking Dead. Walking Dead or Wolf Among Us? Yeah, it totally is. It's just not the definition of a season pass. I think we've looked for because like that's a season pass for a full game, and what we've been talking about is like season pass for add on content, right? Supplementary stuff. Yeah, and Telltale's been doing the whole season pass thing since that company got started, and I think they kind of uh, figured it out pretty well at this point. Yeah, like Monkey Island and uh, Jurassic Park, right? Our Homestar Runner, that game was okay. That's right. Jurassic Park wasn't even uh, like that game only came out as a full experience. There were there weren't was no like there were episodes, but it didn't come out one at a time. I totally even forgot about that. I wonder if they kind of knew it wasn't going to be that good. They had to have. It was it seemed like it was released like really under the radar. It came out just like, I don't know. The only reason I even bought it was because it was billed as uh, a pack in to the PlayStation plus membership. Like it wasn't even part of the whole like instant game collection thing. It was just like, if you buy a membership, this game is yours to keep no matter what. Please take this game. Yeah. (laughs) Somebody please. (laughs) And I, from what I hear, like that game was being worked on simultaneously to the walking dead in the same way that walking dead and fables were being worked on. So I'm sure, like, once they saw the way that Walking Dead was going, it's like, this is the basket we're going to put our eggs in. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Any uh, any last thoughts on this stuff? I briefly mentioned that before, but I really do feel like all this stuff was just 
trial and error this gen, and it's kind of worked, so we're seeing it happen again on the next set of consoles and PC, so it's not going to go away, be it motion controls or 3D in some form, even if it's just the Oculus or um, obviously season passes and DLC. All this stuff is stuck with us for better or for worse, and I guess for the most part, I'm okay with it because a lot of it, you know, you don't have to actually use it to get enjoyment out of a game. And hey, in uh, five to ten years, we're going to be having a discussion about all sorts of new trends. Maybe we'll be talking about, like, off-screen play with, like, Smart Glass and Wii U or maybe something completely different that we don't know about yet. Neural implants. The Wii U 2 Bono edition. Yeah, I don't know where you're going with that joke, but sure. It was just, I don't know, don't worry about it. Oh, like the iPod. Yeah. I mean, Wii U, okay, I got second it. Wii U would be Wii U 2. And then I guess if it was U2, Bono. <laughs> God <back>. damn it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we better call it there. Boo. <laughs> Boo. All right. Aaron, Tyler, thank you for joining me. Thank you. We will uh, be back with you guys next week. Goodbye. Ciao. The Silicon Sasquatch Podcast is a production of SiliconSasquatch.com. Our panelists for this episode were Nick Cummings, Tyler Martin, and Aaron Thayer. This episode was produced by Spencer Tordoff, and the remainder of our editorial staff is Doug Bonham. If you'd like to hear more of our work, SiliconSasquatch.com is the place to check out, where you can also listen to our other podcast, Memory Card. And, if you're so inclined, you can get in touch with the staff. Thanks so much for listening.